Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our text for this third Sunday in Lent is from the Gospel reading. These words recorded by St. John. In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, saying, Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. This is our text, dear friends, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Where there's an attraction, there are vendors. It's the American way. It's not necessarily the wrong way either. Vendors need to make a living too, but it is predictable. County fairs and street fairs and shopping mall, thoroughfares, historic attractions. We've all been to them, and therefore we've all made that obligatory gauntlet run through the thick of the vendors peddling their wares, winsomely pitching their offers with clever verbal hooks and phrases, with just a few words, asking just a few minutes of your time to demonstrate to you how your life would be so vastly improved if you were to to try their product. The side shows at these main attractions, they're not always, though, sale-driven vendors. Sometimes they're simply those who enjoy sitting with guitar or violin, trumpet or saxophone, instrument case open to collect the occasional affirming coin or dollar bill, playing their music, often enjoying playing it as much as the passers-by enjoy hearing it. Sometimes I think they enjoy it more. Where there's a main attraction, there will be minor ones. The problem comes when the minor ones eclipse the main one. The problem comes when the secondary supplementary sideshows take center stage and overshadow the main attraction when you get a figurative solar eclipse. The smaller moon and its smaller light overshadowing the sun's chief light. And it's a problem when the minor overshadows the major because then the main attraction has changed. Perhaps slowly, perhaps imperceptibly like an eclipse, maybe even unintentionally, but changed so that it's essentially no longer what it was. It's become something else. And so it was with the temple established in the pattern of the tabernacle exclusively to be the stationary dwelling place of God with man, it had become something other, something more. First erected by Solomon, this temple, and then rebuilt again after the Babylonian captivity to be the locale on this earth where sins were atoned for by the blood of pure lambs and goats and bulls, it had become something other, something more. A structure of native white limestone, in Aramaic, the royal stone, of cedar and cypress and olive wood overlaid in significant places with gold, standing in its court an altar from which sacrificial smoke would rise like prayers up to God. It was built to be a place where priests offered their priestly prayers for the sake of the people. But this house of prayer had become something other, something more. Rarely, rarely do we see the righteous indignation of Jesus flash, quite like we do in today's text. In fact, the original Greek would suggest that he used his whip of cords 
Not just on the sheep and the oxen, but on the money changers and the sellers as well to drive them out of the temple. The original Greek would suggest that it seems that he may have just kicked over. Not simply, as it subtly said, turned over, but kicked over the low standing tables behind which the money changers used to squat. Not the gentle Jesus that we're used to and often imagine. He was furious. Rightly so, for good reason. The vendors and the sideshows had eclipsed the God-intended focal point and functionality of the temple. The house of God's dwelling of atoning sacrifice of prayer had become something other, something more. A house of merchandising in the Greek emporium. The customary Templar things still went on, sheep regularly slain, prayers prayed, psalms sung. But an eclipse doesn't come about instantaneously. Once a temple of God's dwelling alone, now the text tells us that the money changers, the business doers, dwelt there. Our version, as it was read, says sat there. But the word means sitting for a long time, dwelling. The money changers now dwelt there. The vendors were taking over. To be fair, it wasn't the vending in and of itself. Oxen, sheep, pigeons, they had to be bought unless one were going to haul them all the way from home, wherever in Judea and Samaria and Galilee that may have been. They had to be bought. They had to be pure, quality controlled to satisfy Levitical law. And so for the sake of practicality, so for the sake of convenience, the vendors vended. The vendors and the sideshows, perhaps slowly, perhaps imperceptibly, perhaps even unintentionally, but nonetheless, they had invaded sacred space. Practicality and convenience tinged with secularity began to eclipse the focus and God-given prime and sacred function of God's holy temple. Call it a Templar eclipse. You think it can't happen? In the church today, recall Union Gospel Tabernacle. You know it better than you think. It was begun in 1892 by a wealthy riverboat captain named Tom Ryman, a man newly converted to the Christian faith after hearing a barn-burning sermon by an itinerant tent revivalist preacher named Sam Jones. Convicted to the task, Ryman built his tabernacle on what was Summer Street then, now Fifth Street, a couple blocks from the Cumberland River front in Nashville, Tennessee. A large structure it was, and with the addition of his new balcony, the seating capacity was now up to 3,755 souls. The original intent was that the Union Gospel Tabernacle be used exclusively for Christian assemblies, and, and rightly so and understandably so. But builder Ryman and preacher Jones soon learned that these didn't pay the bills. So to address the practical problem, with the help of a young enterprising woman, they began to bring in other attractions, sideshows of a more secular nature, because these seemed to fill their pews for what they still considered to be the main attraction. Then to make the tabernacle more versatile in accommodating the more secular, what some considered more relevant attractions, the permanent pulpit and a number of the pews, 
had to be removed to make room for their stage. And after some time, Union Gospel Tabernacle was renamed to honor the the builder. A name that better reflected the secular nature of the secular acts that had come to be now the main attraction. It was renamed the Ryman Auditorium. You know it better as the Grand Ole Opry. You think eclipses can't happen in the church today? Sacred spaces being encroached upon by merchandising in the name of practicality? And convenience, even relevance? One Lutheran writer notes this. He writes, you probably have seen or heard the reports yourself. Churches laid out like shopping malls, he writes, with sprawling campuses and food courts. Some even a Starbucks franchise right on the premises so that you can, you can grab a quick latte before the services. It's practical for the churchgoer. It's convenient. The reasoning, he says, goes like this. We're a market-driven culture that responds to the advertising pitch. And so the argument goes, we, we have to market Jesus to the masses in the same way that we'd market paper towel or beer. Market Jesus as relevant, so it's thought. And it's not only the sights, friends, but the sounds, too, as many churchgoers today hear pitched to them the self-help of ten-step programs to a better you rather than the incriminating Ten Commandments that we heard today, and the God-given help of a crucified Christ for a forgiven you. The sounds reflect the marketing itch as all mention of sin is disappearing from some church services because the thought of sin might be a stumbling block to summon an offense to others who might happen into church that day. But thank heaven above, and it sure is good that our doctors don't stop telling us the cold, hard truth, what's really on the MRI, what's really in the test results, because they're afraid we might be offended by it and not come back. If there's no knowledge of the sin-sick condition, what possible need would one have for a Savior and the preached and sacramentally administered medicine of that Savior? Though intentions may be good, the results are not. A partial or even, over time, a total eclipse of the saving work of God's Son. In a time, and in a context no different than ours, when trust in Jesus was belittled by those professing to be wise, when life in the cosmopolitan culture of Corinth was just as morally corrupt, the church of the day just as divided as in the culture of our day. It was in the face of the spirit of that age that the Holy Spirit-inspired Apostle Paul declared, I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What could be more relevant to a world steeped in sin but to know its condition and the diagnosis of it, what's more practical to sinners that face daily in their culture the tears and the tears in life caused by our sin? More practical than a Savior from it. But what's more than an appeal to logic is the charge that the resurrected Lord of the church gave to His church of every age when He said in the last chapter of Luke, and I quote Him, Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in my name to all nations. He will not have his work eclipsed. 
Return with me, though, to the temple, because we'll, we see there that there was more than just a partial eclipse going on that day by the secular extras moving in on the sacrosanct. Worse, we see there what had become a total eclipse of the sun, God's sun. You see, the temple-loving and adoring Jews misunderstood the very purpose and nature of that beloved structure of theirs. Their own additives to the prophet-given truth had diluted and eclipsed the main attraction, so that by this time they were teaching commands of men as if they were, though they were gods. By this time, they had come not even to recognize the one greater than the temple that stood right there in their midst. This beautiful temple, made with hands, over 46 years, the locale in which the glory of the God had dwelt, the place where atonement was made by pure Lamb's blood, where high priest entered with pure atoning blood, the most holy place to bring man face to face with God, where intercession was forever made on behalf of the people. This beautiful temple, unlike any in the world, was never intended to be the final and main attraction. It was a temporary shadow that always was intended to give way to the sun. One greater than the temple is here. The one in whom the Godhead dwells, Scripture says bodily, to eclipse, he's come to eclipse all prefiguring shadows and types of temples and, and lambs sacrificed, high priests, holy of holy dwelling places. You see, the temple had been waiting for Jesus. The temple had been waiting for Jesus. John writes, the word became flesh and eskene and tabernacled, dwelt among us. The writer to the Hebrews, filling in all the old shadows with the light of the sun, writes this, Christ came as the high priest of the good things to, that have come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once on the cross for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In order to topple their temple and their teaching, the Jews demand a sign. Show us your authority for this, Jesus. And so Jesus gives them the one and only sign that they would need. Destroy this temple, he says, and in three days I will raise it up. They did destroy that temple, and he raised it up again. Friends, for centuries, the priestly and bloody transactions that daily occurred in the temple prepared God's people for his son. His son's atoning sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. The temple's now gone. In 70 AD, Roman military forces demolished it leaving, as Christ foretold, not one single stone upon another. Since the 8th century, a Muslim shrine sits where once the glory of the true God dwelt. You can no longer visit the temple. A tragedy? 
That temple is passé. The true temple now visits you. Right here with his divine word, the true temple visits you right here with his atoning blood. He's the lamb slain, your greater ram in the thicket. He's the high priest that enters behind the veil, your greater Aaron. He's the intercessor that now risen stands on your behalf forever at the right hand of power. Your greater Joseph of old, who ruled at Egypt's right hand of power, supplying for his brethren, his brothers, all that their need be. As one has put it, the divine reality for which that temple stood now stands among you with all of its services, with all of his services for you. And so go to the true temple, Christ. Go to the true temple, you heavy-hearted who need forgiveness. Go to the, the true temple, you who need the prayer of the perfect priest. Go to the true temple, you who want to be near to God. Come unto me, he says. Come unto me and rest in the light of the sun. May he never be eclipsed. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.